Hi, I'm Meg Linehan. Welcome back to Full Time for another episode. We're zooming back out this week. Kavitha Davidson and Jessica Luther are joining me today to discuss their new book, Loving Sports, When They Don't Love You Back, Dilemmas of the Modern Fan, which is out September 1st. You might know them both already. Kavitha is a co-worker uh, with me at The Athletic and hosts our daily show, The Lead, which I've actually been on a couple of times now to discuss the latest in women's soccer. And Jessica, in addition to her writing, is also part of the Burn It All Down podcast squad. Before we get into our discussion, let's catch up on the news. So I'm recording this on Wednesday, right after the conclusion of the Champions League semifinal between PSG and Lyon. Lyon advanced thanks to a Wendy Renard header off a Marjorie free kick after PSG went down to 10 players. Now, in a weird twist, Nikita Paris of Lyon also ended up ejected from the match as well, but PSG were unable to capitalize in the final moments of the game. That means that we're now once again set for a Lyon vs. Wolfsburg final on Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. That game will be on CBS All Access for those of you watching here in the States. Only a few hours before the game, PSG announced that one player tested positive for COVID-19 and would not play in the match. According to a report from L'Equipe, PSG believes that the test result for a backup goalkeeper was a false positive and they sent documentation to UEFA on this front as she had previously contracted COVID-19. One more thing from Europe before we move closer to home. On the news, Pepsi has gone all in on a new five-year sponsorship with UEFA, specifically on the women's side of the game. The deal will support women's football at all levels through summer 2025, including the Women's Champions League, the Women's Euro, UEFA Women's Under-19 and Under-17 Championships, and the UEFA Women's Futsal Euro, as well as UEFA's Together We Play Strong program. So a lot of money coming into Europe here. Back to the U.S. Earlier this week, the NWSL announced its return to play for the second time in 2020 in what the league is calling the Fall Series, 18 games with the nine teams being split up into three regional pods. The big news on this front is that the seven games will be on national television this time around, with a game of the week every Saturday in September on Big CBS and then three more on CBS Sports Network in October. There's still more on the way from the league when it comes to the full broadcast info, competition format, and schedule, so A, please don't ask me about it on Twitter, and B, stay tuned, we'll have all the latest for you on this front. That's your news update. I'll be right back with Kavitha and Jessica after this short break. All right. So before we get into the book itself, I figured we would start. There was a lot of NWSL news this week. Return to games, right? Game's going to be on CBS. We've got apparently a, a game of the week every single Saturday on big CBS, not even CBS Sports Network. The, the thing that I think everyone within the NWSL world is currently struggling with is we're still playing games in the middle of a pandemic. And this is not necessarily covered in your book, but I figure it is kind of the exact thing of, you know, you you talk about terms like cognitive dissonance, right? And suspension of disbelief. How? (laughs) We're still trying to play sports in the middle of a pandemic. And sometimes I think, okay, like I'm doing my job. This is totally normal. And then other days I'm like, we're playing sports in the middle of a pandemic. How do we rectify the fact that we're playing sports? I guess the fact that, players' physical and mental health is on the line for this. We could potentially see fans at games. We are seeing fans at games in other leagues. Where are the two of you at? Jess, maybe let's start with you. Um, you know, MLS teams in Texas are playing in front of fans. Uh, Dallas ha- had to withdraw from MLS's back tournament, and then 
proceeded home to play in front of fans. Like, where where are you at right now with sports in the midst of COVID-19? Hmm. I'm all over the place, which I think is probably normal. I mean, we're in crisis here in Texas, right? I mean, the country in general, the numbers are staggering when we actually take time to think about them. I think we're at 170,000 people have died. Forget all the people that are going to have long-term uh, medical issues from surviving this. And oh, I think it's really difficult. I think I felt okay watching the Champs League because I think they're doing all right or they're doing better in Europe. So I feel like less angsty about that. Uh, I don't think we should be playing in front of fans. I think that seems incredibly reckless to me. I do feel there's something about women's sports, right? So when the WNBA came back and everyone was tweeting and they were all excited that's I was participating and then there was this like finger wagging that was happening like, oh, but you people who didn't like them playing in during the pandemic, now you're all okay with it. And I feel this tension with women's sports because I do think when they're playing, we there is kind of this like moral ethical part of me that's like we have to support them. So if they're going to do it, like... I want to be out there supporting them, even if I'm not comfortable with the overall conditions. I think there is a, I do think there's a part of it that's just, it's a bad thing to be modeling, like the resumption of regular life when a lot of people are still sacrificing in really real ways in order to try to, what are we, are we saying flattening the curve anymore? Uh, I, think, I think we're past that. Yeah. So yeah. what, you know, to try to get on the other side of this, tons of people are still making real life daily sacrifices. And so on some level, seeing people play sports seems like the wrong message at this time. But also, I really love it. And I like watching it a lot. And so I'm just all of that at once. <laughs> right. So there's maybe some of that, that cognitive dissonance. I mean, I was even oh, thinking yeah. last night. Okay, I don't know if I feel comfortable with with fans at games. And then at the same time, I'm going, well, if Sky Blue FC is playing at Red Bull and I rented a car and drove out there, I could totally make it work. And it's an outside press box. And, and I'll I, wear my like, mask and I'll be, yeah, like, and, like I'm mm -hmm. going through the exact same thought process everyone else is going through of just like, well, how do I justify my own actions to myself again in the midst of a pandemic? Kavitha, you're, you're freshly back <laughs> in New York City, right? Both of us were... You know, you were actually living in, in Los Angeles. I went for an unintended five-month vacation to Vermont that just kind of kept going. You know, we're both back to this area, uh, which obviously was one of the hardest hit areas early on into this. And I, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, how would I go to a Sky Blue game? I think there is, as Jess just pointed out, this whole concept of women's sports are in a completely different space, right? There is an assumption that men's sports, they might be hard hit, they are going to survive. And there isn't necessarily that same assumption when it comes to women's sports. And just from your, you know, you're coming from a sports biz background as well. What is your sense of trying to balance all of these competing interests among, with each other? Well, I, I think that I have this, the same dilemmas that Jessica just mentioned, which is I don't, feel good about the fact that we're playing sports in a pandemic at all. I don't think it's responsible. I don't think it's essential, which is a word that we really have to kind of pare down in its meaning right now. But it's so good. <laughs> like It's just been so good to be able to watch these games. And, you know, I'm from New York. I was living in Los Angeles, but I would have weekly Zooms with my friends in the last five, six months about just 
hearing sirens on a daily basis and just what the city was like. And, you know, to these people who now the rest of the country, unfortunately, is living through this as well. But in, you know, the early months, it was really just New York. It was very isolated to New York State. And I talked to a lot of people who said, you know, I know it's not responsible. And, you know, we're doing all of the work that we can to flatten the curve or to get past this. But it would just bring me such a sense of normalcy to watch baseball, to watch soccer right now. And you can't really fault someone for thinking that way, right? It's it's a hum it's a humane reaction to have. And that's really like the essence of this whole book is that you have to be kind to yourself, you have to be kind to other people for wanting these games and these sports to succeed. The added thing when it comes to women's sports that Jessica brought up is we do feel kind of a responsibility to support them even more. We really want them to succeed. For two, for lots of reasons, I think it boils down to two things. One is that we don't think that women's sports has the, has the safety net that the NFL does, for example. If the NWSL has to shut down in the middle of fall, we're not quite sure what the guarantee is that there will be the same level of investment and the same level of public support a year from now, whereas nobody's going to stop watching the NFL if they have to suspend their season, Right. The other side of that is the end of the NWSL and the WNBA had such momentum when it comes to corporate support, when it comes to structural change. The WNBA had this incredible CBA restructuring that we were all really excited to see how that would manifest going into the season. And then the pandemic hit. And, you know, we'd like we'd like these leagues to have the opportunity to bear that out. We're finally getting some of the things that we've been asking for for years. And of course, a pandemic hits. And then the other side, and I don't know if this is cynical, but the business side of me comes in a lot is, you know, I was thinking this when we were all watching horse on ESPN, right? And we were all so starved <laughs> for that. sports. Wow. We did do that, right? <laughs> wow. That was like 17 years ago. Yeah. Okay. It, that was I when mean, we were all very, time? very desperate for content. Right. Mm. Yeah. But, and I don't want to say you have to be desperate to watch women's sports. That's absolutely not the point I'm trying to make. But I do think that there are a lot of people who are watching right now because it's available and because they've realized how much they miss sports. And when you distill it down and when you pair out all of the bullshit of these are women and they're, they're, you know, not as strong and they can't hit as, as good shots and that kind of thing, it's still just sports. And that's really the point that we've been trying to make for years. And I think that it took something like a pandemic to make people realize that. Um, so I'm extremely torn when it comes to that, because I don't want this momentum and this good work that we're finally seeing bear out to be to be stifled by by a global health crisis. Yeah. But also, it's not even just a global health crisis, right? Because other, you know, in in very shortly, I'm about to go watch women's champion league games, right? Like other countries are handling it at least better, right? We have the weird situation of, yes, a global health crisis and a pandemic, but also quite specifically our reaction to it as a country. So when I, you know, like a couple weeks ago, did this kind of post-Challenge Cup supporter survey, and it was like, do you feel better about the league in general? And everyone was generally like, yeah, feel great about the league, feel less great about America <laughs> right now. And I think that that's also, you know, I, I kind of want to spin us into this direction and not necessarily losing sight of the pandemic, but 
The book ends with this reminder that sports have always been political. Athletes have always been political. Megan Rapinoe uh, shows up a number of times in this book, which is probably the least surprising thing ever. But, <laughs> you know, we are we are talking about um, America's response to COVID-19 and how that plays, you know, like athletes and, and coaches, like everyone in the college football world is out here tweeting, like, wear a mask so we can play college football, right? Like these these two things are tied together. So spinning from the COVID-19 situation <laughs> in its entirety to the concept that politics invade kind of every facet of sports, I feel like this is really kind of the heart and soul of the book. So I, I did want to start here before we got into something a little more specific that is women's sports centric. But how I, I want to talk about Megan Rapinoe, especially, and just how Megan Rapinoe kind of. <laughs> Jessica's ready to talk about this. So I'm going to start with you. We sat next to each other at the Women's World Cup last, yes. last summer. Yes, we did. Uh, we were actually freezing <laughs> in Paris. So cold. Before the heat wave hit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which probably oh, no so one would believe us. But when I got like, I had to go buy an extra sweatshirt in France because I was so goddamn cold. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about Megan Rapinoe and kind of, you know, she's in the intro. She's kind of the last image of this book. How does what she does <laughs> kind of show maybe like a new way? Hmm, that's a great question. And yeah, she's totally the frame of the whole book. She's in the intro and the conclusion. And when she gave her, it looked like extemporaneous speech. I don't know. And, and also, drunk. Yeah, and drunk. <laughs> like there's something <laughs> remarkable about her. <laughs> uh, but when she gave that speech in front of New York City Hall after the parade and really talking about all of our responsibility to both be fans of sport, but also acknowledge that we are members of a community. Kavitha and I were like texting like, this is our book. Like she's literally saying the things that we want to say in this book. And, and I that think we want people to take out of reading it, right? Yes, yes. Which is why we end, we'd let her have basically the last word in the book because it's exactly it. And I think Rapino is so, I mean, I, I'm a fan of her as a player, but really just the way that she has used her platform, right? And this is a huge, we're in a moment um, around everything with um, racist police violence, as well as talking about the global pandemic and every the government response and all this stuff, right? Um, this idea of like what athletes can do with their platform, like, do you go back to, do you go into the bubble, right? I'll go into the bubble because that will give me a platform and I'll speak out. And we actually saw that in action yesterday, the NBA players, as soon as they finish playing the game, they're asked questions about, I mean, Chris Paul, this video went everywhere. They're asked questions about the game and they immediately, he immediately pivoted to talk about the man who was killed in Kenosha, or not killed, sorry, who was shot in the back by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And I think Rapino is sort of the model for this, um, at least recently, where she has backed it all up on the field. That was one of the spectacular things about last summer was the president, which I'm still even now shocked that that's who that person is. Um, you know, said, like, you can't talk this big game unless you win. And then she just went out and, like, did it. Uh, but then she is just so aware every time a microphone is in front of her face. And I got to watch Meg, one of my 
favorite things that I got to do last summer was actually watch Meg in the tunnel afterwards. And I think it was you interviewing Rapino. Like, that's the closest I'll ever get to Megan Rapino. <laughs> um, and she did it then. We were talking, I think that was a, was that the Thailand game where the U.S. like blew them out and yes. you were asking about it? And she immediately was like, you know, big picture, resources for women's soccer around the world. What should FIFA be doing? Like, she just is so good at taking the moment she's in and the game that she plays, doing all of that well, and then using it immediately to talk about these big issues that are both capital and lowercase p political. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a real... Other athletes should look to her um, as a model for this if they're trying to figure out how to do that. Kavitha? Yeah, um... She's such an effective communicator. Yeah. It's, it's a skill. You know, like, it's such a skill, and it's not a skill all athletes have. And frankly, it's not a skill all athletes should be expected to have. That's, you know, not what they're being paid to do. Um, but like Jessica said, she is so good at spinning forward the moment that she's in, right? She's mm. not just going to talk about, well, you know, now let's talk about equal pay for this tournament that we have just won. Let's talk about how to change this on a structural level. Let's talk about how these things run a lot deeper. Um, I will take slight issue. I don't think that Jessica meant this, but I think that on the issue of police justice, you know, and Megan Rapino has been an incredible ally and advocate for, for that. Um, but, you know, we have had women in the WNBA for years talking about this to making that like primary a primary part of their platform but you know the sad reality of it is that winning a world cup is just a bigger platform than winning a WNBA championship at least in 2017 when a lot of those demonstrations started um but when we when we write the chapter about athletes using their platform and i think we we also use the phrase sports have always been political and I kind of hate the word political in that context, right? Because what does that even mean? Right. Like what, what is political about racial justice? What is political about, you know, not discriminating against gay athletes? Like these seem to be human things and not political things, but in 2020, all of these things are political. Um, but when we write that chapter, I, I think what we're doing is we're allowing for these athletes to be humans, right? I've been saying this a couple of times in a couple of the other interviews that we've done, but what we love so much about sports is that it's basically mythology, right? What we love about these athletes is that they're accomplishing superhuman feats, these incredible physical feats and things that we ourselves as just normies can't do. Um, but they're still human. They don't have actual superpowers, right? And that's what makes what they do so compelling to us. But with that, we have to accept that they're also still human on the inside, right? That it's not just manifested in their physical prowess. It's also manifested in the fact that they are black or gay or women or, you know, that they have, they still walk through life, um, in the same way that you and I do slightly different, obviously, yeah. but, um, but that they still have flaws. And a lot of the athletes that we write about are incredibly flawed human beings. And, and what we write is, is how to kind of reconcile that with the fact that we still love these sports, but a lot of them also should have the right to express that humanity. And if that humanity is Megan Rapino 
make it, you know, compelling you in front of City Hall to do your part to support women's sports and to support social and political activism. That's part of who they are. And that's part of the right. And we don't have a right as fans to deny them that. Yes. Although I, I, having just gone through another round of my own book edits, which is about Megan Rapinoe, like revisiting the Washington spirit incident where the anthem was played early and just, you know, I feel like NWSL has come a really long way <laughs> since that particular incident. And I think that it's also very helpful to put NWSL in a, in a larger context and WNBA, I think is, is especially pertinent here. Um, and I just spoke with our WNBA writer about that a couple of weeks ago on this podcast in terms of, you know, how the WNBA has really made social justice, like the foundation of their season and NWSL is not quite there yet. And there are many, many reasons about why that is. There's no other league that's quite like that. No, I mean, the WNBA no. <laughs> really stands. We have individuals in other leagues, but mm-hmm. as a league, the WNBA really does stand alone in that. Right. I think right. at this point. Right. And it's not necessarily like, I think the NWSL is definitely like on the right path. I don't want to say that they are doing badly at it. I think that there is certainly room for improvement. Right. Um, in terms of, all of this research that went into this book, writing this book, where do you, you know, do you think that more leagues or maybe more individual teams or athletes are going to move into this space in terms of actively making it such a foundational part of both, you know, the games are not necessarily framed around it, but I mean, like thinking about this, the, the thing that happened with NBA, right? Like, as soon as they get a question, immediately changing the subject and being like, no, I'm actually going to talk about police violence or white supremacy. Like, this is not familiar territory, right? Like, we have seen it, certainly, and, and Rapino and WNBA obviously have gotten there. But this feels kind of like a new world. And our, do you think that we're going to start really moving more in that direction at this point? Kavitha, if you want to... Start us well, off. this was this was a huge part about the early divide that we saw in the NBA bubble in the planning of the NBA bubble. We had LeBron and and some other people, um, you know, on the the main side of where the NBA should be, and then we had this this small but not insignificant faction with uh, Kyrie Irving and a couple of other players who basically said, you know, we don't want us playing basketball to distract from all of this messaging, all of this good work that we've done since George Floyd was killed. And, you know, we have real questions about whether when people do have sports to distract them again, whether they'll be as invested in listening to us. And on the other side of that, were players like LeBron who were saying, we're going to only have a bigger platform when we're in the playoffs, when we're doing interviews after, you know, game one of the finals in order to talk about this. And I think a lot of people wondered whether that was actually true. And we've seen in the early days of these playoffs that that has absolutely been true. Um, I will also say again, very cynically that I think that it is good branding (laughs) at this point. You know, we talk a lot about Michael Jordan in the nineties and he was missed. He's been misattributed with the quote that Republicans buy sneakers too, and that it just wasn't good for athletes on an individual level and for their own financial health to wade into some of these issues. And the ones who did, did so at their own peril. And we don't, you know, they're not 
they're not legends. They didn't get to fill out, live out their careers in the ways that uh, others did. But now I do think that it's, you know, if, if an athlete wants to make political platforming part of their brand, it's actually good business. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think that that makes their messaging less and more disingenuous or less authentic. But the fact of the matter is when you have corporate support for saying Black Lives Matter, when you have companies like Nike saying Black Lives Matter and companies like FedEx telling you that you need to change the name of your football team, that also really does matter. Now, there can be a question of whether something as simple as saying Black Lives Matter actually takes any courage anymore um, compared to, for example, what Colin Kaepernick had to go through three, three, four years ago. But I do think that we will continue to see this happening. One, because I don't think there's a way to put the toothpaste back in the tube. I think that athletes have realized that they have so much more power than they've ever realized before. And they probably always had at least some of that power. Um, and two, because I think it's frankly just good business to be socially and politically conscious right now. Nice. Uh, Jessica, agree? Thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I do think this generation of athletes, I think you are going to, this is sort of where we are. And it's hard to imagine this group that we're currently uh, seeing play not be this way. Uh, they really have to backtrack at this point in a way that I can't imagine. Um, I am, the one thing that makes me a little nervous about it is like with the NCAA and everything we're seeing on the collegiate level, which is amazing is that that they always turn over right like people are there for three to five years and then there's a new group and we see this a lot uh i do a lot of work on title nine and you you see a lot of female athletes they won't do anything while they're in school because they only have so many years and you know it, it's like a really big risk for them um and so i kind of wonder what happens when the like 10 year olds, the 12 year olds, when they make it to college, like will, will this sustain um, as they come up? Will they get this messaging and will it stick with them? Will they, will they understand their role that we're seeing these athletes understand now? And I mean, I love all of it. I want, I love when people find their voice. I love when labor tells ownership <laughs> where to put it. Um, and so all of this is very exciting. And I do, I do think we're in for, years ahead of us on this and I don't know what it will all look like I mean one of the things is it kind of felt like it was waning a little bit and then the police were violent again mm -hmm. and there was another video and it's horrific and so we are seeing this the, the sad part is is there's going to be more of it because institutional change is slow in ways that are bad and harmful uh, and so part of it is like this this particular issue is going to just keep happening so these people who are already activated by it i feel like are just going to continue mm -hmm. uh using their platforms in this way so i don't know what i don't know what to tell you about five <laughs> years from now uh but certainly for now this is i think this generation um i don't know i don't know about the legs of it but it's it's exciting right now right. i will say that the one thing that and correct me if you guys disagree, but the one thing that I've thought about is that we have never really seen regression in this space in sports. We've seen it in politics. We've seen it in the rest of our society, but we've never seen athletes take a step back when it comes to being able to use their platforms or being activists in the space. We've certainly seen long periods of stalling. 
But it's not like we've seen two steps forwards and then three steps back. We've seen two steps forwards and then a decade of nothing. And then like five steps forward. I do a little like I do feel like 70s into 80s there the institutions were responding in ways that quelled a lot of the mm-hmm. stuff, right? That's the problem is that ownership and organizations like the NCA have so much power and they can move in ways to silence people, you know, implicitly threaten them. The NCA made it where you could only have one year scholarships, right? Which is the threat that like, if you do this again, as you guys did in the 60s, <laughs> we're going to take this away from you. Like, I do think... That's less that the athletes necessarily are backtracking, but that institutions will rise up to meet the, the moment and, and <laughs> do what they do best, which is get rid of any threat to their money. So, yeah, it's I, it'll be interesting to see how how that works this time around, especially the one thing that's new. And when I think about the younger kids is that social media is just a whole nother beast that like previous the institutions hadn't had to deal with. In, in the previous year, we didn't have, however, whatever you feel about the Players' Tribune or what is the one that LeBron James Oh, unter- uninterrupted. Uninterrupted. I mean, those platforms now exist and they're incredibly powerful. So, I don't know. Um, yeah. I, so, just a little, like, I do think we're, we're going to see the institutional response that's going to try really hard. I mean, there was a whole debate about when the NCAA, when, they, when the football conferences started canceling games Mm -hmm. like maybe they were doing it because that's a good health decision but maybe they're also doing it because these college players threatening to unionize was enough to scare them to like if we don't play then maybe they'll forget about it which maybe they will so i don't know it uh it's also complicated yeah well yeah i mean i think that institutions will always try and evolve how they tamper down labor yeah yeah and they're Um, so good at it the systems that they use will will evolve but i think that labor labor will continue to make strides and that's where it needs to happen in the same way that we're seeing 10 year old kids who are growing up with you know active shooter drills and growing mm-hmm. up knowing that they've got 10 years of this earth left as we know it. Yes. Um, being My 11 year old talks a lot about climate change in a way that I, I he didn't get it from us. Right. He gets a lot of stuff from us, but he's getting that from school and other kids, which whenever he says something about it, I'm like, whoa. Well, so, so you're right. In, in that same vein, I think that we have a generation of 10 year olds right now who are growing up knowing that it's wrong that college kids college athletes don't get paid anything they grow up knowing that it's wrong that um that trans athletes aren't giving a given a fair shake in in sports like this is just their baseline they don't have the complications of adults kind of peppering how they think about these things yet so i do i do have faith it's very rare that i have more faith than jessica that i'm more positive (laughs) than jessica is about (laughs) well like part of me thinks that what will happen with nil the name image likeness is that the institutions will all go look how great we are you should all feel great about this problem solved which is not problem solved and there will be enough people who will be like oh okay i feel good about this and that's the moment when it's sort of, you know, that it works so well. I hate it. Uh, okay. And th- those will, are my cynical points. Sorry. sorry. I, have, sorry I have, it's okay. I have one question that was not on my <laughs> list of topics to discuss with you, but is a, a thing that I think I've always grappled with as someone who has grown up within sports, right? And I feel like I've only been more radicalized as time has gone on. Is there, this is a big question, and I want a relatively brief answer. 
Is there ethical consumption of sports under capitalism? Because my answer is no. Yeah, I'm but not there's sure also there no is. there's also no ethical consumption over cap. But I think it's so weird how sports, in particular, and I think also women's sports in particular, have unwittingly radicalized me <laughs> on this concept. I think I think how I'll answer that, and I'll try really hard to be brief. Is on the one hand, we've got an entire chapter there about how the free market is good for baseball, mm-hmm. right? That is within the current construct, though, right? What I will say is we have never really had true capitalism in sports. And this is something that I say um, whenever people bring up, you know, how long it's taken the WNBA to eventually reach profitability and that kind of thing. None of the leagues that we think about, the NBA, the NFL, or MLB, have done this on their own. None of them have done this through unfettered capitalism. The NFL had all kinds of tax exempts. They were a 501c6 tax exempt nonprofit um, until like the last like five to seven years. I can't remember exactly when. Um, and that was to try and put it simply in order to get the AFL and the NFL to merge and in order to have this beast that we that we know right now. MLB has ha- has been antitrust exempt for almost for 100 years now. And that has come under Supreme Court challenge time and again. And every time it gets struck down, the original idea behind that was that Major League Baseball does not constitute interstate commerce, which I think we can all agree is ridiculous. Um, so there are just and then we can talk about stadium subsidies, we can talk about everything um, like that. But like, you know, none of these leagues have actually reached none of these men's leagues have reached profitability through the lens of pure capitalism. So maybe the answer is just no, because we haven't actually seen that happen. All right, that's valid. Yeah, I think no. I mean, I don't think there's any real ethical consumption within capitalism in general. And that's as true in sports as in anything else. So um, yeah, it is kind of, I bought a t-shirt last year in France. Actually, um, Steph Yang bought it for me because I wasn't allowed to go back in. I'd already left and I had to throw my credit card across. <laughs> I have a vague memory thing. of this, yeah. And then she went and bought it for me. And I know, like, I really want that shirt. And I also know that FIFA is going to get some of that money. And I could, mm-hmm. you know, we could talk about FIFA forever. Right. Uh, and all the problems there. And like, but I really want my shirt. And I, you know, like, I don't know. Um, yeah. That's just, what do you do about that? Um, I don't know, but yeah, I don't know. So no, is my brief answer. <laughs> okay. All right, Valid. I, I want to shift us again. There is a chapter in the middle of this book which revolves around women's basketball, but so much of it is about media coverage and this concept that no one cares, no one is watching. I feel like, you know, first I want to say this disclaimer of WNBA gets so much more shit because it involves black women, right? Like people are threatened by the WNBA in a way that they are not threatened and by gay women. black so, women. Yes. Yes. I mean, there are so many, There's so many levels. Yep. <laughs> so many levels, but WNBA, like when I tweet about the WNBA, the amount of shit that I get in my mentions compared to my normal day job, where I already get a lot of shit in my mentions from men who are trying to inform me that no one cares about what I do. Right. Like, Two completely different levels. But I do want to take some of what you talk about in this chapter and try to to put women's soccer into the mix because so much of this chapter is also just about the concept of how people watch it, how people know how to watch games, right? Like the actual mechanisms of how people become women sports fans and 
the the my favorite thing about this chapter is that two people that I have worked with in the past feature very prominently in it. Howard Magdal, who really like I would not be working in sports without Howard. He really gave me my first uh, full time yeah, job. Shout, shouts to Howard. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, Imani McGee Stafford, who is a WNBA player and is brilliant. And I got to like briefly call her a coworker. But there is a quote at the very like end of this one section of the chapter where I I read it and I like just kind of put the book down for a minute because I wanted to Uh-oh. sit with it. Okay. Where she goes, <clears throat> have you ever bought a pair of scissors that needs to be opened with a pair of scissors? That's women's sports coverage and it's not just basketball. That's what it's like. It's like no one wants to watch the WNBA. No one can find our fucking game. Right? So this week we got news again. NWSL games are going to be on big CBS. We saw big numbers coming out of NWSL for Challenge Cup on big CBS. You know, over half a million people. Again, not kind of NFL territory or anything like that. But for where NWSL, like three, four times what we had previously seen. Um, I want to really talk about this relationship of, it's like this cycle, right? People can't find it. Men decide no one cares. There's no coverage. People can't find it. Men decide <laughs> no one cares. Well, there's yeah. so there's an added peg in there. The okay. reason people can't find it is because men are making the programming decisions. Um, I worked for Nielsen um, Sports Analytics eons ago. And it was always incredible to me that you would present, especially in marketing and advertising, and I think this is changing, but these are these are areas of industry that are very set on doing things how they've always been done. You know, there'll be some innovation here about, you know, videos and things like that. But as far as like the core of what works for their business, it's worked for so long that it's kind of like a, you know, if it don't if it ain't broke, don't fix it thing. Even if you present them with data that if if you prioritize just a little bit women sports or women beer drinkers, this was a huge argument I would have <laughs> with big name um, beer companies when I was at Nielsen. Um, they're <laughs> I love in, that imagery. <laughs> I love it. I mean, right? Like, yeah. can you imagine twenty year old Kavitha talking about yes, like, hey, I'm- I drink beer too. <laughs> Please advertise to me. Um, and even if you're like making the the argument that women don't drink beer, which is ridiculous, women buy the beer, women make those purchasing decisions. So you can make the same argument about who's watching the sports and, and everything like that. But even when you present data that shows that you will increase sales, there is a mental block for the people who are making these decisions at the very top to change that to take the tiniest little risk, right? Because the formula they already know has been working for so long. But we've I mean, Meg, you've shown, you've demonstrated with the Challenge Cup and with the ratings that have been there that when people just know how to find where, like, you know, literally when is like, when is the schedule coming out? (laughs) If you know when the schedule's coming out, you're going to watch these games. And we're seeing this a little bit in the in the in the men's sports side right now. Right. I mean, ratings are such a weird beast and there's never like a true explanation for them but we've seen nba ratings go down um in the bubble a little bit i suspect they're going to keep going up with the playoffs but you know you have these games in a time um in a in a season in a time of the season that you're not used to watching men's basketball you don't know when they're on you're working so ratings are going to go down 
how are you not applying the same reasoning to women's sports, right? And when you know that they're on and when you have when you have them featured on your website, when it's easy to find the schedule, let alone the fact that the programming isn't at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday, Mm -hmm. you know, um, the numbers just bear that out. And sometimes it'll take five years, right? You you might not see the return on your investment in a year, but when do you ever really see the return on your investment in a year, right? I said before, it took the NFL 50 years to actually reach profitability. The NBA was airing playoff games on tape delay up until 1986. Six, you know, so the discoverability of it and the fact that the people who are making these decisions at the top are starting to realize that. And I really think that that has to do with the fact that some of those people are women now. Um, it's really hard to deny that you are leaving money on the table when you show them even the tiniest amount of money that can be that can be gained from making small decisions like that. Jessica, I want to ask you, as you know, I know that you've written a bunch about like the U.S. national team, right? When you're pitching freelance stories, do you feel like there is an additional justification that you have to make to pitch a woman's soccer story over anything else? Oh, yeah. And it's easiest if you can tag it to the U.S. Women's National Team. That's like the easiest women's soccer story you can sell. I was very thankful last year that when I went to France, I wrote for the Huffington Post and specifically for my friend Travis Waldron. And he was open to me. I wrote about France. I I wrote about the underdog teams. Like I got to write about stuff not pegged. I mean, the France one was because they were playing in this what quarterfinal. And but still, the piece was about France. Um I, the story I always tell of, for women's sport is that I had this piece a few years ago about a girls travel baseball team. And I pitched that thing for like five straight months and everyone said no. And they would say things to me like, well, we wrote about girls that play baseball three years ago. Sure. And I'm like, yeah, what? I don't that. And so no one would say to me outright, we don't want it because we don't think anyone will read a story about girls who play baseball. That was definitely the feeling I had five months into pitch, but I believed it. You know, when you feel it in your bones as a storyteller, you're like, no, this is good. And uh, Bleacher Report, RIP Bleacher Report Mag, mm-hmm. um, they picked it up right at the point when it was going to like, it was make or break. And they picked it up and I went and they paid for my travel, which is a big deal as a freelancer. And they sent a camera crew to record these girls. And so there was a video and that thing blew up. It was huge. It was so huge that NBC Nightly News did their own segment about it. Real Sports did their own segment about it. Like it was everywhere. And I'm still smug to this day. And I think about all those people who rejected it over and over. And it's like, there's no villain. There's the, 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 like, there were all these things that were just, we don't want to have a story about girls that play baseball. Um, and it's that kind of feeling. Like, you know, when you go to pitch a story on women's sports, like you're ready. Like, no, this matters for this. Like you, you have to like be ready for all the shit that's going to get thrown at you as to why it matters. Um, and of course, it's ridiculous. People love these kind of stories. And I and like Avita said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's not the thing that will get you to be able. You have to have an editor who believes in the story, too, basically. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so Howard said this very, very directly. He basically said in, in and we have these quotes in the book. He basically said the threshold to get a story about a woman athlete or women's sports approved is so much higher than it is 
an editor will approve a story about the seventh man on the San Antonio Spurs. Now, he said this to me in probably 2018, so that might not be true in 2020 <laughs> with the Spurs, but, you know, a, an editor will approve a story like that and will not approve a story about the second best player on the Minnesota Lynx, right? Um, if if a WNBA story is about is not about Sabrina Ionescu, you're going to have a hard time pitching it somewhere. But the it's a double-edged sword. The other side of that, as Howard said, was the way to grow women's sports and grow interest and, and, and personal emotional investment in these athletes is to tell their stories is to, you know, and that's something that we've been hearing throughout the sports industry is that the storytelling and that these athletes matter and we want to humanize them. But if we can't get one of these stories approved because it happens to be about a woman, then we, that cycle is broken all over again. Right. I mean, this podcast is, legitimately named full-time because it is both a soccer pun, but also the fact that I am a full-time writer in women's soccer, which for a mainstream outlet, there is no one else who is making this investment as of right now, right? Like it's not just that. And, and people are stepped like thinking about the, the ecosystem, I think is where I want to take this in terms of there are people out there who are freelance writers, right? There are people out here who are doing this as a labor of love. I used to be one of them. I mean, losing hundreds, thousands of dollars to cover women's sports out of pocket because this infrastructure does not exist in a more mainstream capacity that will actually pay people. But there is also uh, Lashida Clarendon is in this book as well, talking about how to elevate the women's game, which means elevating the coverage and actually filling it out with things like advanced statistics, the pregame and postgame coverage and storytelling, right? Like storytelling is always going to be a part of it, but it is part of a larger infrastructure. In terms of filling out that infrastructure, you know, where, where maybe some of the pressure points, I feel like we are starting to see a lot of this start to happen in women's soccer, CBS obviously picking up NWSL is a huge step forward, but also, you know, bringing in Sandra Herrera for pre and post game coverage, understanding that the man that they had originally put on that pre and post game coverage, who did not know anything about the NWSL and slowly sliding him uh, off stage and replacing him with Ali Wagner. But again, like mm. you're actually seeing people listen to feedback in a way that has not traditionally happened with women's sports, like I think that we are seeing some areas of growth. What would the two of you maybe like to see next in terms of like, if you had a, like a pie in the sky <laughs> as of 2020 wish for women's sports coverage, just in general, doesn't have to be soccer. Is there like one thing where if you could like wave a magic wand, right? And be like, I'm going to fix this would be top hmm. of your list. Advanced analytics and additional video feeds. Just like <laughs> um, one of the things that I have loved about the NBA bubble um, is that we have 26 cameras now, including the one behind the backboard where you don't actually have to listen to the commentators. And I think it's great because I love when players are mic'd up. It's my favorite part about sports. Um, but it's yeah. And, and video archives, which we obviously can't retroactively go back and and tape a bunch of WNBA games from five to 10 years ago. But imagine if we had that, right? Imagine if, if I wanted to do an episode of my show about the legacy of Lisa Leslie or something, or how we got from 1998 to today. 
And I could go back and put in some archival footage from that and bring in this older generation with this newer generation. But we can't do that. Then with advanced analytics, I think that you'll show you'll you'll have actual statistics to show people that, you know, these games are not just like a kid's version of the sport, which, you know, we shouldn't have to make that argument on this level, but we do. Um, and then I think with analytics as well, you'll have a lot more women employed in analytics, which I think is, you know, analytics has just been an area where we hoped that more women would be able to break into the sports industry. And it hasn't happened that way because there's still this, there's, a, there's still this bias that even women statisticians won't be able to analyze a game they've never played before. <laughs> Or something. So those are the two areas that I would like to see. But to your point about people taking feedback, that's so important also. And it's so important for that to happen more quickly because women's sports just doesn't have the same leeway as other sports do, as other leagues do to make mistakes. So that feedback and that um, adjustment, real time adjustment needs to happen that quickly. Right. Just. Magic wand yeah. time. Money's thanks no object. The, thanks for this question, Meg, because I love questions about what I would do if I was in charge. Uh, <laughs> and Kavitha's totally right. I love those answers. I this Part of what sucks about talking about women's sports is stuff will sound so basic, but I would just really love always having pre and post game and halftime analysis. Like I was watching the Women's Champ League quarterfinals on CBS mm-hmm. All Access this weekend, and I left at so at halftime. And apparently, I didn't see it. And my family, who are not sports people, uh, were deeply confused about what had happened during halftime because they were just showing clips. Slow mo, uh, yeah, yep. Slow mo, and they were like, "What is this a game on?" Like my. I love them both very much, but they were, when I got back from walking the dog or whatever I did, they were like, what is happening? And I was like, oh, there's no halftime show like they do on the men's side because we've been watching the men's as well. And I, when I've been watching the WNBA, when it's on ESPN in LaChina, Robinson shows up to tell us about it. I'm like, thank you. Like I could listen to LaChina talk about basketball all day. And that the fact that I get so thrilled that that's even a thing that's happening is such an indication of how rarely it happened or how I don't expect it to happen. So that kind of basic show infrastructure. And I do just wish on websites that like it was just always on the bar. <laughs> like I didn't have to go figure out how to find women's soccer or women's basketball or women's anything. Uh, I mean, there are times where you're just like you're scrolling past the most ridiculous, dumb men's sports stuff before you get to the very first thing uh, about a women's sports thing on a sports website. And so like, can we just add it to the, the bar at the top? That's my magic also- wand. Also, can we just make enough jerseys? Like, why are yes. why is this still a thing? I'm sorry. All like, the time, <laughs> selling out. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. I think that's everything I had. Do you have any closing thoughts that I think maybe listeners who are coming from a, a women's soccer perspective, like, what's maybe your your most hopeful? Let's Let's go positive. I like going positive. What's your most hopeful take? when it comes to women's soccer who wants to go first this is a oh, big like a well the nwsl is the longest league that we've seen in women's soccer in this country and i feel like women's soccer in general just has so much momentum um 
U.S. soccer has not handled this lawsuit very well. And one thing media loves is, is that kind of story. So we get really good <laughs> merchandise around that, things we can rally around. Um, I think we're seeing these women as people. I think last year's World Cup was like a whole different, even from four years before, like the amount of coverage and seeing them as individuals and as players. I think that was totally different and exciting. And I mean, we could have talked about the Olympics on here, but I mean, one thing I was sad about for this upcoming Olympics that was supposed to take place now, or it's just over or whatever, um, was the momentum for U.S. women's soccer to see the team again play together. And that's true with basketball as well. They were doing that whole, like they were going to go play all the different games in the lead up. Mm -hmm. And so I just feel like people, the fact that, the UWCL, the Champs League, is on CBS All Access right now is because CBS listened and people wanted that on their screens and we got it. So there, it does feel, even with the pandemic and everything around it, the momentum around women's soccer feels real and it it's hard for me to imagine us going backwards. We've got the corporate sponsors yes. uh, in ways that we've never seen before. So I do actually feel really optimistic. And the other thing I'll say about the pandemic and women's sports is that, yes, we're worried about women's sports making it onto the other side. But also, if there's anything in sports that is adaptable to the moment and to survival, it is women's sport. And I think we saw that with the NWSL back first. And they did it right. And they did the bubble correctly. And it was good. In the end, I still, you know, all the other feelings aside, (laughs) all those things are great. And I feel like fans should be pumped about where women's soccer is right now. Right. Kavitha, you you were in Los Angeles, so you were you were in the latest, in theory, NWSL expansion city, right? Like we have Angel City coming in. We've we've talked on your podcast about Natalie Portman being at the heart mm-hmm. of it, right? Uh, are you are you as optimistic about women's soccer? I am. I think I think the way that I'll I'll put this is it doesn't feel like a niche thing anymore. This feels this feels like it's it's in the mainstream. When you're talking about someone like Natalie Portman <laughs> putting her name, but you know, um, it's and it and it not in a gimmicky way too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't a sideshow. And the other thing I'll say is, you know, when we ever talk, whenever we talk about women's soccer in this country, it's always well. The men aren't as good, so obviously we're watching the women, but once we actually get the men, you know, that kind of thing. The fact that Rose Lavelle and we've got players now being poached by British and Premier League women's teams shows you that this is... This is not just limited to the fact that the United States is very good at this. This is a movement that other countries are now putting investment behind and that you can't really reverse on. So I think that there is a lot to be optimistic toward. I think the money is talking and that's so important. Um, And I think that as long as we continue to watch and we continue to yell at the people for not giving us games enough, uh, they'll they'll finally start to they'll continue to listen. All right. So. Before we we sign off, Kavitha, how about you tell the folks listening how to find you and where else, uh, you know, obviously we we share an employer. So Yeah. Uh, So I host The Lead, which is the Athletics Daily National Podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right. And Jessica, how can can folks find you? 
Yeah, anywhere on the social media is Jessica W. Luther. And then I have a weekly podcast that I co-host, Feminist Sports Podcast, called Burn It All Down. And you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts as well. Yes. Uh, one of your co-hosts on that, Shireen, um, has a standing invite to the show. And I just need to finally get her on here and just let her be fully Canadian and see yes. what happens. See what I'm happens. like, it won't be hard for you to get. She no, would love no, that. No. <laughs> I just have to, you know, things like end of this all needs to like stop having things happen just Got for it. like a little Got while. It. So, you yeah. know, we'll, we'll get there, but I'm, I'm always, always enjoy picking her brain, but thank you both for joining me. Hopefully everyone picks up a copy of the book. You know, there's not necessarily a women's soccer chapter, but I feel like, I mean, personally for me as a, as a person who grew up watching sports, like this book was kind of the book that I needed to be like, Oh yes, I can come to terms <laughs> with, what I was raised in and also how I approach it now, right? Like, I think for all three of us, we kind of live it every day, right? And it changes your perspective. But I think all of us also have, like, the work sports and then, like, still, to some extent, the fandom sports. And those are two kind of different parts of your brain that you turn off and on. And I think this book was kind of really good for the fandom part of my brain in addition to the work part of my brain. So highly... Highly recommend. I also very much enjoyed the chapter on concussions in football because that is nonstop a thought I have every time I even remotely attempt to watch a football game. So thank you both for joining me. Super appreciate your time. Thank you, Meg. Thanks so much, Meg. Thank you to Kavitha and Jessica for their time. Please pick up a copy of their book. It's so thoughtful and hopefully it will help you challenge the status quo of sports, which honestly, you're already doing that simply by listening to a podcast about women's soccer. Got one more thing for you. You probably saw me tweeting about this all this week, but I've been listening to the new translation of Beowulf by Maria Devana Headley, and I am loving it to the point where, honestly, my wife is making fun of me a little bit as I keep pausing my audiobook so I can just keep repeating all of the ways that she has introduced the F-bomb into Beowulf. I'm just, again, truly target, target audience for this. But the language is fun and accessible, and as a lit major nerd who did a lot of medieval literature in her time, it's just really made for me. Now, even if you were low-key traumatized by Beowulf in high school, which I do get, this might make it a little bit more fun and relevant for you. I truly recommend it. And, you know, this weekend, it's Independent Bookstore Day. You can just grab it while you're ordering Jessica and Kavitha's book, right? I'm just here to enable you to buy books and tell you about women's soccer. Those are my two goals, apparently. So that's it for this week's episode of Full Time with Meg Linehan. If you do not subscribe to Full Time, you can do that at all of the usual podcast places, including Apple, Spotify, and The Athletic itself. I do want to end this episode, as always, with my ask of your reviews and ratings, which do help us tremendously on Apple, as well as the reminder that if you don't already subscribe to The Athletic for all the rest of our coverage, I've got 40% off your new annual subscription for you just for listening to this podcast at theathletic.com slash fulltime. You can find me on Twitter at It's Meg Linehan. You can always talk to me about books, too, in addition to soccer. Again, don't ask me about the schedule. Thank you in advance. Our podcast producer is Michael Zimmerman. From The Athletic, I'm Meg Linehan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.